You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on November 6, 2020. Let's have a listen. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. And we seem to always get a lot of very interesting questions. Um, we can, I, I'm, I'm happy to try and address a diversity of questions about science, its history, technology, its history, different areas of science, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I noticed we still have a bunch of questions left over from last time that I didn't have a chance to address. So let's see, let's pick one of these. There's a question here from Icy. Uh, why is it that the sunspot cycle is important for shortwave radio? Gosh, you guys throw me all sorts of strange questions. All right, let's see if I can address that. So first question is, what is the sunspot cycle? So if you look at the sun, and like it's a bad idea to like look at the sun with your own eyes, but um, if you uh, like use a little pinhole camera. If you make a little pinhole in a piece of paper, you can project an image of the sun on, onto something and you can kind of indirectly look at what's on the sun or you can look through very dark glass and look at the sun. Um, if you look carefully, really you kind of need to use a telescope to do this properly. Um, you will see that the sun, which looks like just this bright disc to us usually, actually has a bunch of dark spots on it called sunspots. And there's this cycle that roughly is an 11 year cycle of how many uh, sun, how many spots the sun has on at any given time. You can go look it up actually more from alpha. You can go say how many sunspots are there on the sun right now and it'll change from week to week, month to month. Um, there'll be, it'll range from, I don't know, maybe as close to zero up to tens of, of spots. Okay, so what are these things? These are essentially magnetic storms in the atmosphere of the sun. And um, the sun is mostly this hot glowing um, uh, ball of gas. The, um, the center of the sun is very hot, like 10 million degrees. The surface of the sun is much colder, like 6,000 degrees. Um, and, uh, but on the surface of the sun, there's, there's a sort of a layer of, um, uh, of plasma that is um, uh, essentially hydrogen gas where the electrons have been stripped out and so on, kind of like kind of a, a big ball of literally fire. Fire is also, um, a, what we see in fire is also a plasma. But so the surface of the sun is uh, the, the um, there's a sort of atmosphere layer just like of, um, uh, of, of kind of progressively more dilute um, plasma on the surface of the sun. And just like the earth has uh, patterns of winds and other things, and you can have hurricanes and things on the surface of the, uh, on the, in the earth's atmosphere. So you can have similar kinds of uh, magnetic storms in the, in the, in the um, uh, electrically and magnetically charged um, uh, magnetic uh, sort of atmosphere of the sun. 
and uh, you know there there are these kind of giant storms that take place in other places too like in jupiter for example there's the great red spot of jupiter that's been there for at least 400 years or so that is a giant storm kind of about the size of the earth because jupiter is much bigger than the earth so that that um and that spot um, gradually moves around and gradually changes its character. Sunspots are kind of the same kind of idea, but they are a sort of a, a some kind of um, uh, thing that's a bit like a hurricane, but operating in this uh, plasma atmosphere of the sun. Okay, so one issue with sunspots is that when there is this kind of activity in the in the uh, sort of atmosphere of the sun, the sun tends to uh, spew out more and more charged particles. So, so usually the sun, you know, what we most see about the sun is the light it produces, but there's also electrons and protons that that are being uh, that are sort of being uh, um, uh, emitted from the sun. Just as the sun is emitting photons of light, it's also producing a stream of electrons and, and protons, and that the primary part of that stream is the so-called solar wind. Um, which is this this uh, this flow of of uh, electrons and protons out from the sun? Okay, so the solar wind is the the amount of it depends on um, uh, the, um, uh, the the depends on what's going on in the in the atmosphere of the sun, and there are these so-called coronal mass ejections, which are things that are somehow associated with this kind of storm-like structures in the in the atmosphere of the of the sun. I'm not sure how how completely this is understood. I, I have not um, uh, lost. I looked at it, which is probably um, through maybe a few decades ago by now. Um, it was not well understood. Whether there is a better understanding of it now, I'm not sure. Um, but there's been, as I say, there's an 11 year cycle. I don't think that cycle is well understood. And there are also a longer range uh, changes like um, in the mid 1600s, there was a period when there weren't sunspots for a long time. It also corresponded to a period of very cold climate on the earth. And it's conceivable that the amount of, of heat and light produced by the sun actually is also somehow related to these features of the atmosphere of the sun and the, and the number of sunspots. Okay, so what does any of this have to do with radio on the earth? Well, so from the sun, there's the solar wind, varying amounts of electrons and protons that are emitted from the sun that stream outwards from the sun. And a bunch of those, uh, just like light from the sun reaches the earth, so also those electrons and protons from the sun reach the earth. Okay, so what happens to your average electron or proton that's uh, uh, approaching the earth from the sun? Depends a bit on how fast they're going, how energetic they are. There's a, a definite um, uh, spectrum of energies, just like for light from the sun. Light from the sun tends to be concentrated around a certain range of wavelengths that make the sun look white to us because it just has, it mostly has, um, it's, it's, it's concentrated in, a, in this um, uh, uh, black body spectrum, Planck spectrum, uh, with a peak um, somewhere in the, in the middle of the visible light range. Um, in the case of uh, the charged particles, electrons and protons, it's a slightly different distribution of, uh, of energies. Um, I think the, um, uh, the, the oh, let's see, in, in the units used by particle physicists, um, one GeV, uh, one billion electron volts, um, is a common energy uh, for protons from the sun. But in any case, protons, electrons from the sun uh, come out, they get to the vicinity of the earth. What happens to your average proton that's approaching the earth? 
Okay, well, there's another complicated thing. The Earth has a so-called magnetosphere. And um, the because the Earth has a magnetic field um, that is produced by uh, currents in the, in the liquid core of the Earth, um, the electric currents essentially in the liquid core of the Earth produce a magnetic field, which, which is mostly like the field of a giant bar magnet that would be in the Earth from the, with, with one end at the north magnetic pole of the Earth, the other end, south magnetic pole of the Earth. That produces a, um, uh, that has, has the effect of, of, um, uh, uh, of producing this magnetic field. And when you have a charged particle, that's moving, um, a magnetic field uh, exerts a force on that charged particle. Just like when you have uh, electricity and static electricity, electrical, uh, electric uh, things that are electrically charged, if they're charged alike, they'll repel, if they're charged oppositely, they'll attract. Um, when you have something, when you have a magnetic field, it has an effect on an electrically charged thing. Its effect is a little different than the effect of an electric field. The magnetic field, the effect is proportional to the velocity of the particle, and it's also in the direction. So if the, if the, if the particle is moving in some direction, the magnetic field is going in some direction. If those two things are at right angles, the actual force is at yet another right angle in, the, in, the, in sort of the third dimension, so to speak. But in any case, the, the main point is that when a, um, when a charged particle uh, interacts with the magnetic field, it's deflected, um, there's a force um, associated with the magnetic field that deflects the particle. Okay, so your average particle from the sun is approaching the earth. Um, let me not talk about the magnetosphere. Um, let me just talk about what happens when the charged particle from the sun interacts with the magnetic field of the earth, which is kind of like this bar magnet thing. The main thing that happens is that these particles will spiral in towards the earth. They'll be sort of There'll be the forces associated with the Earth's magnetic field will trap the particles, and uh, they'll they'll form they'll they'll move in these kind of spirals, and they will tend to move towards the north and south magnetic poles of the Earth. And so, particles from the sun they'll all they'll be pulled in to the Earth's magnetic field and and, uh, and 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 spiral in. Okay, what significance does that have? Well, um, uh, gosh, there's a lot of steps to this. The okay, so. A, uh, the, a charged particle that is um, uh, being uh, uh, being deflected, being uh, essentially a charged particle that has a force acting on it and that is as a result accelerating. So when, when something, in order to keep something going around in a circle, you have to say it's got to change the direction of its motion continuously so that it keeps going around the circle. If it didn't change its direction of motion, we will go in a straight line. In order to change the direction of motion, you are making the thing accelerate in a certain direction. So another feature is that when a charged particle accelerates, it emits, uh, um, it, it radiates an electromagnetic field. So uh, an electromagnetic wave. So that means when it's just a, a rule about, about the way electromagnetism works, if you take a charged particle and you uh, accelerate it, it will generate an um, uh, um, uh, uh, electromagnetic radiation. Um, and uh, in particular, if you have a charged particle going around a circle, there's a particular kind of electromagnetic radiation called synchrotron radiation that is produced 
that's associated with it. it it's it, it's true of any acceleration, but if you have it going around a circle, there's just particular characteristics that that radiation has. And this is electromagnetic radiation, so like radio waves, um, not nuclear radiation. Um, in any case, so particles spiraling in around the north and south magnetic poles produce uh, electromagnetic radiation. That essentially means that they're producing uh, radio waves. And so if you are uh, if you have your radio receiver tuned to something around the frequency of those radio waves, you will essentially hear the um, uh, the effect of all those particles that came from the came from the sun or in the solar wind were captured by the Earth's magnetic field, were spiraling around in the Earth's magnetic field, were producing radiation. You get to detect that radiation with your radio. And that's what happens in shortwave radio. I mean, I, I remember at least when I was a kid, I, somehow radios today don't, don't usually, are usually set up with nice digital stuff and so on. You don't really get to tune it to a certain frequency and certainly not those kinds of frequencies. Um, but uh, um, you, can, you can hear all these, all these funny noises that are very uh, um, sort of uh, spacey sounding noises that are uh, essentially the radio turning the, that electron, those radio waves into sound that you can hear. Um, and that's, um, uh, and that's, that's how uh, there's an effect from, from, um, uh, from the, the solar wind on, and particles from the sun on radio. And as I mentioned, the, um, uh, the, the, the amount of solar wind depends on, among other things, um, the, the number of sunspots in the sun. Now, another effect of, um, uh, of these charged particles spiraling in um, around the north and magnetic, south magnetic poles is the aurora. So if you've been at, um, at sufficiently northern or presumably southern, although there's a lot less land there and people don't go there as often, if you go to kind of uh, fairly northern uh, somewhere in Canada or something like this, and it's uh, sufficiently dark and it's typically in the winter time, so it's, it's um, you know, dark a, a longer part of the day, um, and you let your eyes get very dark adapted, um, you'll probably see uh, an aurora, or you may see an aurora. The amount of the aurora depends on the number of charged particles that are, um, that are, that are coming in to, towards the Earth from the sun. Uh, what the aurora looks like, it kind of looks like this giant kind of curtain-like structure across the sky. Um, and uh, if you let your eyes get really dark adapted, you may start seeing it in color in typically reds and greens and things like that. What is the aurora? The aurora is the effect of those charged particles from the sun interacting with the upper atmosphere of the earth. And in particular, they, the charged particles are producing, um, are interacting with things like oxygen um, in the upper atmosphere of the earth. And the, when a, a charged particle, um, oh boy, another, another level of physics I have to explain here. Um, what's happening is that uh, you have an, an atom of oxygen, for example, it has electrons that are in that atom. And the, the, if the atom is somehow given more energy, those electrons will uh, they have a certain set of energy levels that they can exist at. And that's one of the consequences of quantum mechanics is that in an atom, the set of possible energies for the electrons in the atom uh, are a discrete set. So if you, if you just have a, um, 
I don't know, a planet orbiting a, a star, the planet can orbit at any distance from the star. It can have any amount of kinetic energy as it moves around in its orbit. But when you look at very small things like electrons and atoms, that's not true anymore. And what quantum mechanics kind of showed from the 1910s to 1920s type period um, is that uh, uh, in fact, instead of there being a continuous set of possible energies for the electrons in an atom, there's a discrete set. Okay, so what? Well, the when an atom produces, uh, uh, when an atom produces, uh, if, you, if you somehow get the electron to go from its lower energy state to a higher energy state, then after, after a while, the electron may make a transition back to the lower energy state. And in doing so, it uses up the energy that it went to, that, that, it, that it lost by going to the lower energy state. It uses that up by emitting a photon. And so one of the things that happens is that when you excite atoms of a particular element, there will be a discrete set of so-called spectral lines, a discrete set of frequencies, essentially different colors of light that are emitted. And you can detect that by using a prism or a diffraction grating or something like that. You can see it particularly in like fluorescent light bulbs. You see a very distinct spectrum of, um, uh, of, of, of lines of, of places where there are particular energies, particular colors that um, are produced um, by that gas. Well, it's the same thing in the aurora. The excitation of things like oxygen and nitrogen in the upper atmosphere um, they are, uh, they are given energy by these charged particles from the sun. And then they, as they uh, sort of, as the, as, as the energy is, is dissipated from those atoms, it's emitted in the form of photons of a certain frequency and those frequencies correspond to, to kind of reds and greens and so on. And that's, um, that's what you see in the aurora. So what you're seeing in the aurora is kind of a map of, of where there are charged particles that are exciting atoms in the upper atmosphere. And then those atoms in the upper atmosphere are emitting light, which we get to see as the aurora. And that's, um, that's kind of the, um, uh, it's, a, it's a feature of the fact that there are all these charged particles that are being captured by the magnetic fields of the earth, which is most intense near the north and south magnetic poles. Um, and that's, um, and that's, that's what causes the aurora. Okay, that was a surprisingly long answer. I, I have to say, I'm, I'm, it's always one of the things that's really interesting about um, uh, doing these Q and A's is that um, uh, it's like uh, there are questions where I say to myself, that's a fairly straightforward physics question. I kind of know the answer to it. And then I realize there's five or 10 different steps that have to be gone through to explain it. So that was a, that was a longer one than I was initially expecting. All right, there's a... Um, question from uh, Michael here. What aspects of the origin of life would be interesting to investigate with current computing tools? Okay, interesting question. So uh, first question is, what is life? And what would count as having got something that we consider to be alive? You know, on, on Earth, everything that's alive has, for example, RNA in it. All the bacteria, even viruses, um, well, viruses can be RNA or DNA viruses, but, but basically everything uses this genetic code idea that's encoded in RNA and DNA. Everything uses proteins and amino acids. 
there's a lot of chemistry that is in common between different um, uh, uh, between all the life that exists on Earth. Now, maybe when life was originating on Earth, there were five competing versions of chemistry for life, and only the particular one that involved DNA and amino acids and so on survived. And there were other ones that just died out. We don't know. Um, but one question we can ask is the particular example that we have of life on Earth involves this particular collection of chemical processes. Now, if we ask abstractly, what is life? That's a much harder question. If we ask, if we say, well, you know, how, do you, how could you tell when, for example, you look at, you know, soil on Mars or you, you dig down in, you know, the oceans of Europa or something, or if uh, one of the popular things right now, if you look at um, the clouds on Venus, you know, what would allow you to tell whether that complicated chemical process that's happening in the clouds on Venus or something, whether that counts as life or not. And people have tried for a long time to make sort of abstract definitions of life. It's never really worked very well. In fact, I don't think it's possible to make such a definition. People say something is alive if, for example, it can reproduce itself. But now think about something like fire. Fire, once you have a piece of fire, it can sort of reproduce itself. Or if you say, um, uh, well, and, and you say, well, if it can't reproduce itself, then it's not alive. Well, you know, you think of something like a mule, which happens to have been, been, been set up so it doesn't happen to be able to reproduce itself, but it's most definitely a pretty alive creature. So, so these kind of abstract definitions that people come up with have, have never really worked. There are a variety of other ones that involve kind of life is something that sort of takes its environment in the form of food and things like this, and turns its kind of disorganized environment into the actual organized structure of the organism, so to speak. Again, there are plenty of systems that do that. So, so these abstract definitions don't work very well. Um, but the particular instance of life that we have on Earth has these particular chemistry and particular chemical processes that, that characterize it. So the question is, how did that all get started? And how did you go from kind of a... Um, uh, just the earth with a bunch of, you know, random chemicals on it to something which had all the features of modern life, so to speak. And uh, could we, for example, recognize that process happening in the clouds on Venus? What would it look like? Uh, there's a lot we don't know about how life originated on, on earth. Um, I think there are certainly, uh, there's different questions about what came first, for example, cells. The fact that you've got this collection of chemicals that are all uh, sort of all having reactions together, all inside this, this skin effectively around a biological cell. Um, it could be that cells were an early thing to happen, that they sort of made the little test tubes effectively that allowed chemical processes to go on in a more effective way in the early earth than, um, uh, than uh, than, than otherwise. I mean, the, the, the general belief is that life originated in the early oceans of the Earth in liquid phase. Uh, possibly life originated in something slightly more exotic, like one of these sort of um, uh, hydrothermal vent type things where you have somewhat exotic temperatures and gradients of temperatures and, and somewhat exotic chemicals and so on. Or, or possibly it originated in something that... Um, um, is uh, uh, just just purely, but but the general the general thought is that it's probably originated in liquid phase, um, and because the liquid allows you to have lots of chemical reactions happening and lots of things mixing together. If you have a solid, 
things just don't move very much, so not much can happen. If you have a gas, things don't kind of, there isn't quite the, the level of amount of reaction that can happen in a liquid. So probably a liquid is the thing. Now, you know, so what came first? Would the cell come first that sort of provided the test tube in which other things can happen? Did um, uh, what originated things like RNA and DNA and uh, these uh, kind of um, biological molecules that are capable of storing information that can be sort of genetically transmitted from one, one, uh, one, um, one generation to the next? We don't know. There's a possible thought that clays were involved where you have a, 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 a surface of clay and maybe um, maybe the, the, maybe you could essentially just have, instead of having this molecule, DNA, for example, that on which you can put information somehow on the surface of the solid surface of clay. And I said, everything was happening in liquid phase, but maybe solids were important because maybe you could kind of deposit the sort of template for your living system on this clay that would then stay constant uh, even as the sort of chemicals swirl around, but we don't know. Now, in terms of can we investigate this kind of thing with, um, uh, with tools that we have, well, uh, we can sort of try and make computational models of what would be involved in a process uh, where one goes from this kind of, uh, where, one, where one generates something sort of as complicated as a self-reproducing molecule. Um, which is what, uh, uh, well, DNA is not on its own a self-reproducing molecule. It needs all the apparatus of, um, uh, that, that exists in cells to, to be able to actually reproduce itself. Um, actually, I mean, I've done a bunch of computer experiments um, on looking at, um, uh, looking at the sort of emergence of complicated behavior from, from very simple rules and very simple sort of random initial conditions. It's a little hard to conclude all that much because it really depends on this question of what is the fundamental definition of life? You know, you're not really simulating actual amino acids and actual detailed chemicals. You've got something much more idealized. And the question is when you've got that idealized thing, what feature do you point to and says, yes, I just got something that was sort of counts as a living system that emerged from this. Now, one of the things that's interesting is, is life, how common is life? If you have the early earth with all the molecules it had and all the different processes that are going on, is it sort of almost inevitable that you'll end up with some form of life, that you'll end up with a particular form of life that we have with DNA and things like that? Nobody knows the answer to this. Nobody knows whether this is sort of a very rare thing that only happens in very, uh, you know, by a great chance, you know, with a chance of one one, you know, one chance out of a trillion, 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 or whether it's much more common. I think the general belief is it's probably fairly common. Now, the question is how many completely disparate forms of lifelike stuff could you get? The answer is probably very large. And maybe many of them would not be recognizable as something that we would say is like life, because when we talk about life, we think about the particular instance of life that we have here on earth. So then the question is, what's the chance that something sort of reasonably close to life as we have it on Earth would arise elsewhere? Uh, we don't know the answer to that. I mean, one of the things that may be a very confusing feature is life is very good at replicating itself. So, you know, if you just have some meteorite that, um, uh, let's say, originated on the Earth and, and it had a little piece of something, you know, bacteria or something, or... Um, uh, these uh, tardigrades, which live a really long time in very, um, very uh, 
in, in without any nutrition or with, and without even uh, atmosphere or whatever else, you know, if these things hit your ride on a meteorite, you can end up going a very long way across the solar system or even across the galaxy um, and, uh, and end up spreading uh, the particular form of life that, for example, we have to somewhere quite different. So if we suddenly discovered that on Europa, for example, there's life that's just like what we have on Earth, I think it's vastly more likely that it got that way because it got physically transported there, some, some seed effectively got physically transported there, than that life in the particular form that we have here on Earth uh, would originate in, in two different times, even within the same solar system. So that's a little bit on, on that. Ah, uh, gosh. Well, I've got a question here about um, from Pranjul. Um, how does 3D printing work and what is its potential? Okay, fundamental idea of 3D printing is you make stuff by incrementally adding things. So a lot of manufacture of objects, you will uh, like a, a, a typical sort of piece of a plastic object or something, you'll make a mold, usually out of metal, you'll pour, pour liquid plastic into that mold and then the, 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 and then the plastic will solidify in the shape that corresponds to that mold. You take the mold off, you've got your plastic thing. Okay, that's, that's sort of a traditional way to make a plastic object is you have a mold that gives you the, that defines the shape for what's initially liquid plastic and ends up, uh, that, that ends up solidifying and producing the shape you want. Okay, a 3D printer instead builds that piece of plastic, that plastic object um, incrementally. So it literally has a thing that is essentially squirting out little tiny pieces of plastic and it keeps on just adding tiny pieces of plastic to something that's growing, 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 growing. And a, a typical technology, uh, typically it'll, it'll grow it in layers. So you'll see it, it'll have this little print head that's running around and it's adding little pieces of plastic on one layer and then it adds pieces of plastic on the next layer and the next layer and the next layer. And pretty soon you've built an object it's so-called additive manufacturing, so to speak, where you're just progressively adding pieces on to the object you're growing. And um, you can, uh, uh, so both with a mold, there's a limitation on the kinds of shapes you can make in a mold, because if, if you're going to have the plastic go into this shape, then you want to pull the mold apart after pull the mold away after you've made the plastic. There are, there are ways you can have sort of little spokes pointing out of the plastic where you just couldn't pull the mold apart if the plastic had solidified in that shape without breaking the plastic. Well, in the case of 3D printing, there are less limitations on the shapes that you can make. Um, the, the only kinds of basic limitations are if you're making the thing and you're, you're sort of growing it additively from its base, it better not be the case that there's a thing that's floating in space where you, you specified in your computer some geometry that just says, and now we want this sphere that doesn't have anything to support it. You always need supports that um, allow you to sort of grow up from the supports. Now, maybe you build the supports and then you remove the supports when you finish building it. You know, it's interesting when, when you look at the growth of, of organisms in biology, um, there, there are always different tricks that organisms have to use to grow the shapes they grow. So for example, huge difference between plants and animals. Uh, you know, plants have rigid cell walls made of cellulose and so on. So once they've built a shape, they don't get to change that shape. 
So a tree, for example, it's got this solid, you know, wooden trunk, so to speak, and then it makes these solid wooden branches. And so trees uh, often use this branching pattern. They, they make tree-like branching structures. And that's because that's a very convenient thing to do if you can't change your, your shape once you've made it. Animals, on the other hand, are much more squidgy and um, they, can, they can change their shape. Uh, they, things can, can have their shape changed even after they're formed. And if you look at the way that different, uh, different pieces of us form, there are things where something will form and then it will fold over and then it will folds will be pulled back and so on and so on and so on. And, and you look at different features of us, whether it's shapes of our ears or our fingerprints or all these different kinds of things. And they're all made in different ways. Like, like for example, famously, our, our fingers are originally made in a kind of a sheet of material where it's like a, like a flipper, but then the, the cells between the fingers die off. And that's how the fingers get separated in, 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 uh, during uh, embryo development for, for us humans. But so, so there are these different schemes for kind of making shapes, but 3D printing is all about incrementally making a shape by just adding one piece, one piece after another. And um, so what can you do that way? You can make all kinds of shapes that were not easy to make with molds and things like that. Uh, what can you make those shapes out of? Well, people started off making them out of certain kinds of plastic because that was easier to kind of squirt out of a little nozzle to actually uh, add things to it. But you can also do 3D printing with metal. You can do 3D printing with sugar. You can do 3D printing of all kinds of things. And um, uh, that, that's so one feature is you can make all kinds of different shapes. The other feature is everything you make is custom made, so to speak. So if you have a mold, you've made one mold and you stamp out you know, thousands, millions of different objects that are the same shape based on that mold. But in 3D printing, it's just a computer controlling where that print nozzle is going to go. And so you can have every, you could say, let me make uh, a thousand unique objects. Each one of them is made by, um, uh, by doing, uh, by, by just having the computer move that printer print head around differently. Now, you know, that's the good news. The bad news is I suppose that although 3D printing has become, it's, it's pretty easy to make a 3D printer these days. Um, and uh, they, you, can, you can get them made pretty cheaply. They are um, the, uh, the, 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 it's still, they're kind of a little messy to use. I mean, and, and you know, you end up with little granules of plastic all over the place and you have to brush it off and things like this. And, and it can be, you know, if you, there's a bug in your program that uh, is specifying how to print things, you know, the manifestation of a bug might be a bunch of liquid plastic squirting out of the print nozzle and all kinds of weird things can happen. And it's, it's been a gradual process to make 3D printing more and more straightforward. Now, other things you can print, there are also many biomedical things that you can print. So one thing that um, um, uh, is, um, uh, is, is of interest to print is um, um, things like collagen, which are connective tissue that um, uh, is, is used in us, but it's just a molecule. And you can imagine just sort of printing collagen in any shape. And then you can use that as a scaffold to, to have actual biological cells form around it. So for example, uh, uh, one company I know of is trying to print uh, uh, 3D lungs. Lungs are this very complicated tree-like branching structure of maybe 23 levels of tree-like branching. And their idea is to print that out of collagen, then uh, have 
actual lung cells be sort of recruited to cover that collagen scaffold. And then you have something which is essentially an artificial lung. And so kind of the idea there is to, is to have things where you can print pieces of, of, uh, that can be used in, in biology, where maybe you actually print the final thing that's going to be used, or maybe you print some kind of scaffold that's covered with biological cells um, that can then be used uh, as an actual sort of artificial this or that uh, for biology. But so that's that's kind of one direction. So I think, I think the things about 3D printing are you can make shapes that aren't easy to make some other way. You can uh, make one-of-a-kind shapes uh, easily. And you can also potentially make shapes out of materials that you didn't otherwise think you could arrange in any in any particular way. So that's kind of the direction. I think there was a, you know, 3D printing is really in its current form is maybe 10 to 15 years old. There were sort of precursors of it going back a long way, but it's been partly sort of precision engineering, partly the computer control, and partly the ability to do computational geometry and figure out sort of how would you make this shape and so on, that's really made 3D printing sort of come alive. I think there was, there's sort of a, uh, there've been, uh, I think it's it's as in most kinds of things in manufacturing, it's it's sort of a gradual process to make it cost effective to do things that particular way. It's still much more efficient to have a production line that stamps things out with molds and so on than it is to have 3D printers. But you know there are some things like doing biomedical 3D printing where you're trying to make something which will be an artificial this or that, that's the particular shape needed for a particular person, or where you're trying to make a very high value thing, like you're trying to make some uh, some complicated shape of turbine blade that's going to be in, in a jet engine, that's going to be that where you couldn't make it any other way, and where it's going to be a very expensive object, it makes perfect sense to do that with 3D printing. Um, but uh, you know, the sort of revolution of manufacturing with 3D printing, where instead of having a production line where things are kind of stamped out with molds and so on, everything is being 3D printed, that hasn't happened yet. It may yet happen, probably will eventually happen. I think one of the things that sort of holds it back is that robotics is still something that is uh, quite special purpose. You know, you have to make a robot for a particular purpose. We don't have the analog of, of that we do with computers. We can just have any computer can take any any program basically and do different kinds of computations. We don't have the analogous thing yet for robotics, and that's one of the one of the pieces that's needed. Well, there's some much more technical questions here, which I, I really should probably do another session. There's one from Wave Morfer about the difference between string rewriting systems and L systems. The, um, uh, the I, I, I certainly knew Aristotle Lindenmeyer, the inventor of L systems. Actually, strangely, those relate a little bit to the, the thing I was talking about before. This is an abstract model for how you can make branching structures. You can take, for example, you have a rule that says A goes to AA. And so you make a string that's A, 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 and then every one of those A's you replace by two A's. And you kind of trace what happens. You start off with a single A, you make it into two A's, each of those two A's branches again, and you'll end up with this kind of tree structure. Um, that's a thing called a zero L system um, sometimes, or a string substitution system. Um, the uh, uh, Those kinds of things where you just take a simple, single character and you turn it into multiple characters. Those have been quite well studied. Um, the, the case that is uh, more like the string substitution systems that, that I tend to use um, have to do with, with uh, taking blocks of letters and rewriting those. 
and then taking blocks of letters and rewriting them in all possible ways. And that's a little different. I suppose you could think of it as a non-deterministic uh, uh, arbitrary L system where KL system where, where instead of having a, a thing which uh, just, uh, yeah, this is getting very technical. I think this is for a different, for a different, um, different discussion. Um, all right, so there's a question here from Daniel. How do you think like a mathematician or a scientist? I've read and heard that math and science take a different mental process than what we are shown at school. What skills should I be building? Okay, so that's interesting. So doing research in math and science is a little bit of a different process than learning the tools of math and science. And quite a lot of what tends to be done in school is learning the tools to be able to use what people already figured out in math and science. And when you do research, what you're trying to do is figure out things people haven't figured out before. You're trying to build new math and science. And that's a little bit of a different process than, than making use of the math and science that's already been built. Now, needless to say, when you try and build new math and science, it's good to build on top of math and science that's already been built to make use of the tools that come from existing math and science. I think that, um, well, let's take math and let's take science separately for the way that they're taught uh, in particularly K through 12 schools. Um, I think that there is, uh, there, there are kind of, well, there's different kinds of things. When, when you learn math, you're learning, um, you're learning a variety of things. You're learning a sort of, things about how to think precisely about anything. You're learning particular methods that have been found useful in actually doing the math that people have found useful. And maybe you're learning a little bit about the sort of cultural tradition of mathematics and the kinds of things that people have been able to figure out mathematically. Those are, those are separate kinds of things to learn. Um, I think what you're not particularly figuring out is to how to build new mathematics, for example. Um, I would say that the one essential feature of sort of thinking like a mathematician is just thinking in a precise, organized way about things. So, you know, give you an example. This is a good kind of mathy thinking kind of question. So let's say you're gonna number the, the corners of a square, okay? Okay, how do you do it? Well, you might say, let's go, you know, around the square, one, two, three, four. Okay, reasonable way to do it. Now let's say you've got a cube. How do you number the corners of a cube? There's no right answer to how to do this, but you could just say, well, I'll just put one number here and I'll put another number there and I'll just fill in numbers until I've got all the, all the corners of the cube numbered. But actually there are much more systematic ways to do it. You, you think about, oh, I don't know. You think about each, each thing as a, a coordinate in three dimensions and then you convert that to a single, a single integer or whatever else that there are a variety of ways to do it. Or you make a path where you're going around the cube in an organized way. So sort of thinking mathematically is about kind of how to organize your thoughts so that you, you make things, you, you think about things systematically. That, that's, that's a big part of it. Um, I think that the, the question of sort of how you, um, of the actual methodology of doing mathematics, how do you, you know, uh, add fractions? How do you work out an integral? These kinds of things. There's a certain set of systematic methods that people have invented, and there's a lot of little tricks that work in this case or that case or the other case. Um, it's very useful to learn how to do anything precisely. 
those particular tricks probably aren't super useful. Um, and in fact, you know, when you say, well, how does a computer do an integral, work out, you know, fractions in, in lowest terms or whatever else, the methods it uses are actually rather different from the methods we humans use. The methods we humans tend to be taught to use involve the noticing the little special shortcut that can happen for this particular exercise. The computer doesn't do that. The computer has an algorithm, maybe we programmed that algorithm, um, that is like a big industrial machine that just says, given any integral of this type, grind, 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 I can turn it into this very complicated formula, more complicated than humans would ever want to deal with, but I'm just a computer, so I can deal with that complicated formula, and it comes back down, it produces something which humans find useful. But, but so, uh, I think the, um, so that's, that's one thing. Another thing that's very useful to learn in mathematics is kind of just what's known in mathematics. You know, there are these ideas like prime numbers. Prime numbers come from antiquity. They were, you know, they've been around a long time, but it's like the idea of a prime number is an interesting idea. Um, the idea of kind of uh, something like topology, that's a much more recent idea, roughly 120 years old. Um, but that's an, an idea, you know, how many holes does this, does this object have independent of the overall, of the shape of the object? What is its topological structure? How many, you know, what does it, is it like a donut with a hole in the middle or is it, is it like a, a blob, like a sphere, so to speak? Um, that's another kind of idea that comes from mathematics. And there's a, there's a series of these ideas that are in some level not very difficult to understand. If you want to sort of do topology and be a professional topologist, that's a whole layer of complexity. But the basic idea of topology as kind of a cultural idea is something that you can definitely um, get access to. And I think some part of what's done in mathematics education tends to be, uh, well, partly because of the kind of structure of education and assessment and all this kind of thing. Uh, quite a lot of it tends to be sort of this quite mechanical, you know, now you've got schemes for working out adding fractions, go add 200 fractions together, so to speak. Um, and uh, that, that's, you know, that, that's sort of different from this question of sort of culturally learning what are the important things that are known in mathematics. Now, when it comes to science, uh, different fields of science, you know, in physics, for example, you can expect to do in or chemistry that they have been mathematicized enough to the point where you can actually expect, given a particular physics scenario, you can expect to sort of predict what will happen. Um, the, uh, that's not really true in biology. Biology is much more, you know, uh, given, given the existence of elephants, can you predict the rhinoceros? No, you can't. Um, that, that, that are actually, I have more things to say about that particular issue, and there is some degree of predictability, but, but it's not something that's accessible at the level of, of, of learning kind of school biology. And there it's much more just, there are these facts about the way biology works and, and there are some inferences that you can make from, from the fact that biology works in this way, so it implies this and this and this, but there's not the same kind of depth of formal structure that exists in mathematics or even in physics or to some extent in chemistry. Now, I mean, you know, when you, when you start sort of doing research about things, uh, you know, research is about answering questions that haven't been answered before, building structures that haven't been built before. The, the place that I think is the, is the great growth area for that in, the, in our times is computation. And you know, I've spent a large part of my life trying to build this sort of full-scale computational language that allows you to take things you think about and make them computational, and then get a computer to help you do them. So whether it's dealing with chemistry uh, and dealing with the kind of graph structures of molecules and being able to figure out 
you know, the three-dimensional structure of the molecule and so on, given what you might think about as sort of the graph structures of molecules or whatever, that's the kind of thing that, you know, our Wolfram language system knows how to do intrinsically. It already knows a lot of the knowledge that you might have had to learn uh, painstakingly sort of in, 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 in school. It, it's automating those kinds of things. And it's letting you kind of concentrate on, on thinking about, so what do you want to figure out? But part of explaining to it what you want to figure out is you have to be able to formulate your thoughts in a computational way. Uh, it's the same, same thing with mathematics. You know, you've got some word problem of, you know, if, 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 if Jane has seven marbles and, and Bill takes away three marbles, you know, how many marbles are left, okay? Or some more complicated version of that. Um, you've got to be able to take that description in words and turn it into a sort of mathematical equation type of thing. So similarly, when you have some question about, um, oh, I don't know, geography or whatever else, you know, what's the, what's the capital city that's furthest from an ocean in the world? Okay, that's a question you can sort of formulate that computationally. What does it mean to be furthest from an ocean on, on the, given that the earth is spherical? You know, is that, is that the distance on the surface of the sphere? Is that the distance through the sphere? Those kinds of things. Once you've formulated that question in a clear computational way, then it's the job of people like me to provide automation to actually get that question answered by the computer, so to speak. But learning how to formulate things in a computational way is, is, an, important, is an important thing. And that's kind of, I think, probably the top you know, 21st century skill that still only a fairly small number of people have. And that's the top kind of thing to aim for is you know, how do you understand how to formulate things in computational language that allows you to do computational X, where X is pretty much any field you can imagine doing. Now, in terms of the process of doing research, the, there's, there's given a question, how do you answer the question? And there's, how do you come up with a question? So what I've been addressing in terms of thinking in computational terms and so on, is particularly oriented towards, once you have the idea of a question, how do you formulate it in such a way that you can answer it with the help of a computer, perhaps? The other thing is, how do you come up with a good question? Well, actually, thinking computationally provides a way to do to help with that as well, because thinking computationally allows you to, to kind of have a, a way to form your thoughts so that you can kind of make inferences from your thoughts without even using a computer, just by virtue of the kind of organization of your thoughts that sort of turning them into something computational provides. But in general, the... Um, uh, you know, the, the, the thing to do is think about, you know, given something you're studying in school, question is, what questions can you ask about it? I mean, it's, it's kind of like what you guys are, are doing with me here. You know, it's like, what questions do you want to ask? You learn something about some particular area of, I don't know, biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, whatever. It's like, okay, what do you wonder about based on what you learned? What is it that wasn't answered by what you learned? Now, the thing you wonder about might be something that, oh, well, the teacher will cover it next week. It's all rather easy. Or, oh, yeah, you'll get to that at some point in high school mathematics. Or it might be like, oh, well, you know, if you do graduate school mathematics, you might get to it. Or it might be something where, sorry, human civilization has not yet answered that question. And what's remarkable is that particularly when you start thinking computationally, you very quickly get to questions. You very quickly are led to formulate questions where it's in the, sorry, nobody's, nobody's figured that out yet, perhaps because nobody formulated that question before. Um, and, uh, you know, even in, in mathematics, there are questions about numbers that are really very easy to formulate. 
uh, well, they're questions that are famous that people have formulated like, are there an infinite number of twin primes, primes like 11 and 13 that are just two apart? Nobody knows the answer to that question. People have worked on that question a lot. That question is really hard, at least in the current stage of mathematics. But there are plenty of questions you can ask in mathematics where you say, imagine you've got some sequence, like I'll, I'll give you one that I, I just was looking at, okay? So you've got, um, you've got a sequence, you've got um, a function, f of n, n is a, an integer. So, so you might say, you know, the Fibonacci sequence, a famous sequence where f of n is equal to f of n minus one plus f of n minus two. That sequence, if you, if you start from zero and one, for example, the, the successive values of f of one, f of two, f of three, f of four, f of five are one, one, two, three, five, eight, uh, 13, 21, I should know the Fibonacci numbers. Um, each one is just made by that formula. Okay, so uh, take the formula, instead of the Fibonacci formula, take the formula um, f of n is equal to three times f of n minus f of n minus one. So the f of n minus one is inside the, um, it's, it's f of n minus f of n minus one. Okay, uh, I have no idea what the sequence of values produced by that is. I've, I've looked at it on a computer, it jumps around all over the place, it's really wild, it's really random, and we know nothing about it. And you know that's not a particularly complicated question to formulate, um, but it's something which is, you know, that's a frontier research question where we know nothing so far. And it's quite possible that, you know, maybe, maybe there's actually something pretty obvious if you look at it in the right way. Maybe there's something that is obvious in the sense that doesn't require a lot of elaborate mathematical knowledge to figure it out. Maybe it's something that if you know, you know, algebraic K theory, it will help you in figuring out the answer to this question. Um, but, uh, you know, but that's sort of the essence of research is, is like, what are the questions um, you know, and then, then if you do research for a while, you know, one of the things that if you, uh, well, which uh, the best people kind of get good intuition for is what kinds of questions need what level of difficulty of answer? What kinds of questions are likely to be, oh, that's pretty easy. You can get there pretty, pretty straightforwardly. And what kinds of questions are likely to be big, deep, complicated things? And then what kinds of methods might be useful for answering those questions? But that's kind of the, um, uh, you know, when you do research, the, um, it's kind of a, uh, you know, you have a question like the one I just phrased, that just, just described. And it's like, I don't really know how difficult that question is. I have certain ideas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I know that by doing computer experiments, I can make some progress on that question. So I know that there's, in terms of sort of planning the research, I know there's a certain amount I can figure out whether I'll be able to crack the question and say, yes, I really understand. I can really prove what's going on in the sequence. I don't know, but I can get, I've got, I've got a kind of a, a direction to go in doing computer experiments. I've got some definite thing to do. It's always bad in research. We get to the point where it's like, I don't know at all what to do next. There's no obvious thing to do next. Uh, in my experience, if there's no obvious thing to do next, do a computer experiment and try and look at particular examples, try and actually, make it concrete what you're doing and look at examples, even if those examples are a kind of very junior compared to the full question you're trying to ask. But, but those are some, some, uh, uh, some things. Now, you know, I would say that, that um, uh, sort of being able to do research successfully, uh, you know, to really push the frontiers, you have to be good at figuring out what questions to ask. And that's not something that they teach you in school. 
Um, and I think the way, uh, you know, I, I think people are kind of born with a good ability to do that. I think people get distracted from their ability to ask good questions by being told repeatedly, that's not a good question. And I just don't think that's a, uh, I think, you know, every question is a reasonable question. It may be easy to answer or maybe really hard to answer. Um, but, you know, you can, you can look at all of them, so to speak. And I think also in terms of the, uh, you know, doing research, uh, being proficient with tools, particularly computational language in, in modern times is, is, is the single most important tool to be proficient with in, in doing research in pretty much any area now. Um, and that, um, and, and also there's a, there's a question, how much you, should you know about what's already been done about the question you're, you're trying to answer? So one of the things that can happen is you have a question, like I've been working on a particular thing last week or two, and I realized there's a huge literature. There's thousands of papers that have been written about this question. And I might say, oh my gosh, somebody must have answered this question before. You know, I don't need to look at this. I'll just, uh, but, 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 you know, I've looked at enough of this stuff to know that all these things are going off in a slightly different direction. They're saying a lot of things I don't understand. It's like, do I have to understand all this stuff to answer my question? I hope not because it's gonna take a lot of effort. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of you, you might get to the point where you say, oh my gosh, you know, I don't wanna read these thousand papers because they're not really relevant to what I'm trying to ask. And they're all asking their own questions and I'm gonna get distracted from what I'm trying to do by reading them all. And it's a complicated thing. You know, I, I tend to operate on the principle that I keep my questions kind of clean and defined by me. I try and do my homework well to understand what it is that other people have done that relates to my particular questions. I don't try, I try not to get distracted by the fact that what other people have done answers asks different questions that maybe the methods they've invented are useful for answering because that's the way that you kind of get, that's the way you kind of get um, uh, taken off track, you know, to, to say, well, my question must not be good enough because these people are asking other kinds of questions. Let me change to asking one of their kinds of questions. No, don't do that. Stick to the question you had and then find out to what extent the things that people have done can can inform the answer to your question and, and do your homework well. I mean, I, I tend to work quite hard on trying to understand not only what has been figured out, but also the history of what's been figured out. Because often you, you might say to yourself, well, I wonder, you know, has somebody figured this particular thing out? Once you understand the history of the field, you may realize, no, nobody will have looked at that. Because at some point in the history of the field, everybody went off in this other direction and they never, and, they, and maybe somebody had been doing this and that direction just died off. And so, so there won't be anything there. And it's, it's useful to understand the history because it, it tells you kind of where are likely to be the clumps of knowledge and where, where did people not, uh, uh, not go. So good question, thank you for that. There's a question from Jonathan here. Do you think we could see a day when people are taught and educated by AI and computers, either with or instead of people? And what do you think of this, especially when compared to education today? You know, when I was a kid, which is now a depressingly long time ago, you know, I, I always liked reading books about the future. Um, and I remember one book in particular, which had this diagram, this picture, and it said, in the future, there will be teaching machines, and that will be the way that everybody learns things. Well, it didn't happen. And why didn't it happen? Well, a couple of reasons. I think one thing is some people are really pretty good at just learning, you know, first thing is you have to be motivated to learn stuff, I think. The only way you really learn well is when you're motivated to learn. And I know that's certainly true for me. I'm, I'm probably a particularly bad example of this because, you know, I've learned a lot of different kinds of things, 
But everything I've learned, I've learned because I cared about it for some particular reason. Uh, you know, there was some particular project I was doing that required me to know about this. There was some particular uh, question that I was curious about that caused me to learn about this and so on. And, you know, it gets easier after a while because you've learned a lot of stuff and things start to fill in. And it's like, well, I'm learning about this and that relates to these other three things that I already learned about. But the fact is that, um, uh, to m at least for me, and I may be a particularly bad example, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm motivated by the content of learning about things. I think other people may be more motivated by, for example, the competitive spirit of, I just want to do the best in my class at all the stuff I'm learning about, for example. And that's a perfectly decent motivation, but you have to be motivated in some way to learn about stuff. And I think that uh, sometimes one can be sort of abstractly motivated to the point where you just like, I want to learn about this. I'm going to go read the books. I'm going to go look at the websites. I'm going to go do my computer experiments, whatever else. And you're just going to do them. And it's not, um, it's not something where somebody has to sell you on doing them. But some of the rest of the time, uh, you know, particularly if you're going through this whole curriculum of what you might learn in school, some of it you'll care about, some of it you won't care about at the time. And some of it, frankly, has to be sold to you. And that's, in a sense, a large part of, I think, what teaching uh, ends up being as a human activity is sort of motivating a student to, um, uh, to do things. And then a student maybe can have a particular confusion. And it's like, can you navigate that confusion and say, yes, this is the thing you need to know? And, you know, I, I've talked to lots of, of, of teachers who, who I asked them, you know, is there a limited set of confusions that you see in, for example, teaching some area of mathematics? And they say, well, after enough years teaching, yes, probably there is. And it's like, okay, this person is saying this, this person is getting the wrong answer to this question. This is probably their confusion. Now you ask, what's the role of things like AI and so on in doing this? That type of thing of you got this wrong answer, this is what your confusion is likely to be. That's something that I can imagine we could automate. And in fact, we've done some work on trying to trying to automate that kind of thing. Haven't been, uh, uh, haven't gotten it to the point where we have a production ready system for it. Um, but that's a an interesting kind of thing. It's the same kind of thing. If I wrote a program, it did the wrong thing. What kind of bug might my program have? These are things that I think there is at least we're within sort of striking distance of being able to use modern artificial intelligence methods um, to 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 answer things about that. Another thing that you might ask is, for every one of us humans, there's probably an optimal way to explain any particular kind of thing. And you know that's based on stuff that is not readily knowable to somebody else, which is, you know, what do I already know? Like I was earlier today, I was um, uh, doing something I don't usually do. I was participating in sort of an academic conference about, about theoretical physics. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm much more used to interacting with people where, where it's like somebody's explaining something to me and I ask them a bunch of questions and then they answer those questions and I keep going. And I find that for me, that's a lot easier than just listening to somebody doing kind of the broadcast thing of let me explain it to everybody because my particular way of understanding it, I need to know this particular thing, this particular thing, because those are the things I need to triangulate from knowledge I already have. And that will let me understand this much more quickly. Um, I don't need to know the other 20 minutes of stuff that, um, that in fact, I already understand perfectly well, but other people in the audience might, might not know. Um, so, you know, I think there's a sense in which there is, a, one can imagine being able to sort of target 
how one explains things to people based on what people already know. And you might be able to deduce something about what people already know by asking them a few questions. And then that, you know, clarifies sort of where they're coming from, so to speak. And then you can kind of um, start explaining uh, things in, in, with a particular a sort of trajectory of explanation. And I can imagine that that's something that is sort of AI reachable. Now, in terms of what people learn, I mean, you know, I, I, I sort of have a crusade in a sense in, in education. Uh, you know, people felt that education was too kind of rote and too much just learn a fact, learn a fact, learn a fact, learn a fact. And then people said, let's teach principles, not facts. And then they were like, well, um, but we don't need to teach any facts. And that's just not correct. I mean, the, you know, we know a lot of facts in our civilization. We know a lot of facts about science. We know a lot of facts about history. We know a lot of facts about a lot of things. And you, as any of us, we can't, we can't reinvent the whole history of mathematics. We can't reinvent the history of science. We can't reinvent you know, geography, so to speak. We, we have to learn those facts from the outside world. Now, how we get motivated to learn those facts and whether we should learn them as, you know, learn the periodic table, so to speak, by, by rote or whatever else, that's, a, that's a, more of a detail. But knowing that there are facts and actually learning facts is super useful because facts are what allow you to provide sort of the framework for understanding principles. If you try and understand some abstract principle without facts, that's really hard to do. Some people are better at that than others. People who go into pure mathematics sometimes are, are um, or, or certain kinds of abstract um, computer science and so on, maybe people who are better at the, at the understanding of abstract principles without, without sort of a, a framework of facts. Although I think, uh, even in, in that, I mean, I, I, I work on a lot of abstract kinds of things, and I think many people would think of me as, as a pretty uh, sort of um, uh, pretty experienced abstract thinker. But the fact is, for me internally, I'm really thinking in very concrete terms. You know, it may come out as something abstract, but I'm thinking about this kind of symbolic representation of the thing that's very concrete and, and this, you know, has this computational representation. And that happens to be related to, that happens to be understandable in this very abstract way. But, but um, so, you know, I think that that's a, now, you know, another question is, what is the subject matter that you should learn about in sort of K through 12 education that's relevant to the modern world? And, um, you know, the, the, the sort of history of education the, the subject matter has remained fairly constant for since education became broadly uh, broadly deployed in a hundred and something years ago. It's, uh, you know, at, at some level, it's kind of reading, writing, arithmetic uh, type thing, um, somewhat generalized, but but it's it's remained fairly constant. Is that the right stuff to teach? You know, I think the, the most important thing that's arisen since the time of the beginning of public education is the computational paradigm, the idea of computational language, the idea of thinking about things computationally. That really needs to be just like literacy in English language or whatever language you use, um, you know, the idea of, of uh, being able to think in terms of computational language, just like the idea of thinking in terms of mathematical language. These are really very important and useful things and, and really critical skills, I think, for, for doing lots of things in, in, in the future. But I think that, you know, it's an interesting exercise. Take your average, well, I was thinking of printed encyclopedias, but they barely exist anymore. Um, but, you know, take your average big printed encyclopedia and you look at all the different categories, all the different subject areas that exist in there. And you ask yourself, which of these do you learn about in regular school? 
And the answer is it's maybe one third, a sort of touched on in some way or another, not necessarily at the depth of the encyclopedia, but, but you know, roughly touched on. And there are lots of other areas, you know, you don't tend to learn about, I don't know, law or accounting or medicine for that matter to, to any, any great extent, or, you know, lots of areas which are, which are very common areas for people to, to do as careers, you don't actually learn about. And I think more to the point, there are lots of emerging areas which you certainly don't learn about because they're just not part of what, um, uh, what has been sort of burnt into the, the curriculum. And I think that's an, it's an interesting challenge and, and question, you know, to what extent should one, you know, there are things to learn about that aren't part of standard school curriculum. What do you do about those? I mean, it's also has to be said that, um, uh, you know, I think a very important piece as I, as I keep on sort of repeating, you know, this learn the facts, learn the things that our civilization has learned. You know, once you know all that stuff and it includes history and things like this, which, you know, history is complicated and it's, it's full of complicated stories, you know, told in different ways by different people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, there's, it's worth learning history, even though history is complicated. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, I think the, um, but, you know, learning this kind of base of sort of what we know as a civilization, that's, that's, that's one of the great things that we, we humans have that's different from other animals is we get to actually pass on knowledge from one generation to another. And that has a large thing part to do with the fact that we have language and so on. Um, you know, you gotta make use of that in education. It's no good expecting everybody to invent things for themselves at each generation. You know, we might as well be, be uh, you know, be antelopes or something if we were doing that. Um, that's what, that's what other, other organisms have to do, but we, we have something better um, and we should make use of it. All right, let's see. I need to go fairly soon here. Um, Boy, there's a question here. This is a pretty abstract one, but I'm going to try and try and do something with it from Mikhail. What is the difference between science and philosophy? You know, always when, when you say, given a word, given another word, what is their difference? What is, what is their relative meaning and so on? Obviously, words are just a way of taking a concept that we have that may change with time and attaching a label to it. So, you know, we, we can say, well, what is the concept that we currently have for science? What's the concept we currently have for philosophy? How do they differ from each other? Historically, the, the borders of philosophy and science have moved quite a bit. I mean, in, in, in uh, you know, physics used to be called, in a sense, natural philosophy. Uh, what tends to happen is philosophy is an area where you're kind of trying to figure things out from, in a sense, nothing, from you, you are almost, you're trying, to, you're trying to say, given some, some framework for thinking about the world, which might be in terms of sort of axioms of how the world has to be set up, but given something, given some basis that is some quite abstract and, and perhaps simple description of what goes on, maybe it's logic, maybe it's something about ethics, whatever, given these principles, what can we then, just as a matter of sort of logical inference, deduce from these principles? I mean, that's, that's sort of one slice of, of the way one thinks about philosophy, or, or maybe one doesn't start from principles and build things up. Maybe one has arguments and one has to say, how do these arguments relate to each other? If you believe this, can you also believe that? And so on. People have tried to kind of take philosophy and build it up a little bit like one imagines mathematics is built up, where it really is a very formal thing, where you can sort of get a computer to do it, go from this step to this step to this step to sort of build up what's true. Um, 
that's not how philosophy has been successfully done, nor I think is it likely to be. But what tends to happen is philosophy is arguing about things in a more, what can I say, a, a less formal way, perhaps, but still in a sense, a rational way, but not yet a fully pinned down formal way. It's, it's sort of connecting things together and connecting ideas together and understanding the relationship between ideas. And sometimes that understanding of relationship between ideas has a very direct consequence for saying something about the natural world, for instance. Now, people believed for a long time that was the only way to figure out things about the natural world. I mean, in, in ancient Greek times, you know, your average philosopher had a theory of physics. You know, the world is made from little icosahedra or the world is made from this or that. And, um, you know, people at that time imagined that we would figure out how the world works, what we've now call physics, using the sort of pure thought approach of philosophy. What became clear by the 1600s is that there are other methods, particularly ones from mathematics, um, that allow you to, to, to make progress on that. Now, mathematics, as I mentioned, is kind of, in some sense, conceptually a little bit like philosophy, but in mathematics, it's much more buttoned down. It's much more, you have these axioms, you build things up, and you build a giant tower sometimes. You might go on for, for multiple hundreds of years building theorems upon theorems upon theorems upon theorems upon theorems. I mean, I think one of the things about philosophy, uh, you know, I say this, my, my mother was a philosophy professor, actually, um, and I always used to kind of make fun of the fact that um, uh, in philosophy, people are still arguing about questions that they were, had raised and discussed 2,000 years ago. In other words, it isn't the case that there's this big stack of things that have been discovered and you're sort of building on top of this giant stack. More, the things that Plato had to say are still things that we argue about today. It's, it's a much shallower kind of structure in a sense. And I think that, um, uh, and, but, uh, and so what happened starting in the 1600s particularly was that particularly through mathematics, one was able to build this sort of structure for science that had this kind of many, many layers of, of formal structure. And when we was able to do things in philosophy, the, the main person who does philosophy is a person. In, in uh, sort of the mathematical sciences, by this point, the main mechanism that is figuring out things is a computer. And I think that, the, um, that there's, there's sort of, there's, there's layers of, of kind of automatable stuff. Whereas in philosophy, you're, you're dealing with the things that are very close to the kind of the bedrock of ideas. Now, I think that the, the other thing that happened in, um, but which is sort of entangled with philosophy, is things like sort of experiments and looking at the natural world and looking at computer experiments, these kinds of things, and the way that that informs one's, um, one's way of thinking about things. But I think that's that the really key point is that um, uh, one is, in philosophy, one is really, you know, it's just uh, the method of making progress is just human thought. In these, other in these other areas, there tends to be this sort of stack of methodology. And typically what happens is when you don't have anything else to go on, just use human thought to figure things out. So things get figured out in philosophy, same what, what's what happened in natural philosophy. Once you have more formal methods, you can transport it and you can say, well, now we have a physics and we have a mathematical physics and we have a computational physics and we can figure things out that way. Now, it's sort of interesting because a lot of things transition from philosophy to other areas. So for example, um, I know that, uh, well, I, I always find it interesting, there are these questions that come up in things like ethics. And, you know, the questions of ethics, in the end, the self-driving car has to make an ethics decision. And in the end, 
this thing that has been debated in philosophy for 2000 years has to be turned into a piece of code. And so in a sense, the philosophy, you have to end the philosophy and actually turn it into code at some point. And quite a lot of what I've done in computational language actually can be thought of as sort of a way of thinking about epistemology and ontology, uh, linguistic philosophy and so on, and concretifying it in the form of computational language, actually taking things which were thought of as being sort of philosophical discussions and turning them into things where now we're actually going to make it precise and make it into a systematic uh, way of doing things that we can think of as more like science. Um, so that that's, uh, and you know, for example, a big area I happen to have been involved in recently is about quantum mechanics. Uh, there's a certain, when you calculate things in quantum mechanics, there's great physics ways to do it. We can work out all sorts of features of, of, uh, of physical systems by just doing math from quantum mechanics. But there are some questions of the interpretation of quantum mechanics people have been very confused about. And they have turned into philosophy, so to speak. People saying, what is an observer? What does it mean to observe a system? What does it mean to be an observer who's in the system that's being observed? All these kinds of things. Well, now that we have a much more concrete theory of physics that should include all these kinds of observers and so on, we get to take what was a philosophical question and actually turn it into something which is more systematically formalizable and it stops being a philosophy question. It becomes a question where you can just say, the answer is blah. Um, and uh, you're not, it's not something where you have to be reasoning about it and, and doing things by pure thought. I mean, I, I would say that um, another, just one other comment about sort of the, the role of philosophy versus, uh, versus science. When, when we built Wolfram Alpha, uh, it was, there was, had been a long history of people trying to use sort of earlier artificial intelligence methods to answer general questions about the world. But their general idea was typically, let's reason about the world to figure out the answer to a question. So if you ask the question, you know, um, I don't know, uh, some question about whether some object is going to fall over, um, you know, it's like, well, let's reason about it because it's longer at the top and shorter at the bottom, then it will fall over or something. Well, what, and, and people have found it very difficult to make a systematic kind of computational knowledge question answering system on the basis of that kind of philosophy style reasoning approach, um, which was have been a sort of a tradition of AI to try and do those kinds of things. When we built Wolf Alpha, what we did was say, let's just take all the knowledge of our civilization, which includes science and mathematics and so on, and yet use that to try and answer questions. And then when you've got some question about some mechanical object or whatever, it's like, well, we just turn it into equations and we solve the equations. Now, maybe some philosopher from, you know, maybe in the particular case we've given, some philosopher from the 1200s could have reasoned about this thing and figured out what would happen, but it's a lot easier to just use the equations of mathematical physics that originated in 1600s, 1700s, and so on, just say, okay, let's jump ahead using science effectively and answer the question. So, so that's a sort of a place where you see the interplay between, between science and philosophy. Now there are questions right now, oh, there are questions that I thought were still philosophy questions, like uh, uh, why is it our universe and not another? Can there be more than one universe and so on? I think we've been able to make a lot of progress in actually answering that question. Um, using methods from science, and the answer is there's only one universe. Um, and uh, th th then, then there's a question which is still my, my kind of philosophy meets science question that I've been grappling with, which is, uh, why does the universe exist? Can we prove or disprove the existence of the universe? And my, my current belief is that it may be possible to prove that as an entity embedded within the universe, it is not possible 
to know, uh, to prove that the universe exists. That is that the, the proposition the universe exists, like in Gödel's theorem in mathematics, the proposition or more like Gödel's second incompleteness theorem actually about the consistency of arithmetic, but um, that it's not possible to prove from within that system some meta fact about the system like that it exists. But that's, that's a place where, for me, at least that's a sort of philosophy meets science thing of, is that going to be a philosophy question? Why does the universe exist? Or are we going to make, make a science version of it? All right. I think I have to, um, uh, to wrap up here. So many interesting questions. I would uh, enjoy um, chatting about these for, for ages. Thanks for joining us. And um, I uh, look forward to going on and uh, uh, taking, uh, maybe starting off with some of the questions I didn't have a chance to get to today um, next week. So thanks a lot and bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.